Hello and welcome to Astrocytes 5, the special edition with Liv Lansdale. I just returned from an extremely productive and relaxing trip to New York, and today I'm very happy to present this special interview with my good friend and colleague. Before that, let me say that if it wasn't obvious enough already, I've been going through quite a turbulent couple of years. Returning to Brooklyn at first served to collapse my own awkward ego, but it quickly turned into an impressive odyssey of insight and empathy. In Crown Heights, I was first disheartened to learn of my friend's various and sundry depressions and disappointments. It quickly became clear to me that, despite their hardships, they continued to struggle and strive. The power of unity as a force greater than intrinsic narcissism was like a strobe light in terms both blinding and illuminating. For the first week or so of my trip, I desperately tried to craft a solution to my chronic despair which had followed me all the way to New York. In fact, one of the reasons for this interview with Liv was to ask her for her impressions of people who had submitted themselves to electroconvulsive therapy. At the time, ECT seemed like a reasonable next step. I haven't ruled it out now, but other possibilities have pushed past the McMurphy option. Without further ado, here's my interview with Liv. Why don't we start with um, self-care, and why don't you talk about the things that help you the most that aren't medication? Sure. Um, I want to begin with the disclaimer that I'm not opposed to medication, and I... No, no one is on the show. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so listeners, like, there's no shame in taking medication and considering taking medication. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, it, for me, it's a personal choice. I want to explore all the options that I have that don't involve medication. Um, before, I said that I was prescribed something that works, and that's true, but the side effects are uh, a bitch. It's a serious medicine, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, if you, we were We're texting earlier, you're experiencing the side effects right now. (laughs) They fucking suck. Yeah, they fucking suck. Um, So, so, um, to be honest, a lot of the, or I guess this is going to come across as unsurprising, but many of the things that I'm doing now for self-care are things that I not only was not doing like two or three years ago, but I think I initially would have kind of bristled at. I think I held a sense of superiority to people who, for example, would get eight hours of sleep mm. or would spend time with friends without trying to advance their careers or something. Um, but now I'm not looking at screens for at least 20 minutes before attempting sleep. I am putting curtains over my windows, uh, especially in the summer. I wake up really early sometimes. Mm-hmm. I'm... Um, Exploring non-medicinal sleep aids like um, smel- what's that M one melatonin. Melatonin. Yeah, you got to be careful with that because the real dosage you need is you usually get about ten or twenty times that in the pills you get at Costco. Yeah. So that's why I don't know. Yeah, but, I mm. I will pop like two or three of them at a time. Too much. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> um, um, oh yeah, I actually eat food now. Mm. I used to. Oh, another thing I'm doing is I'm not doing internships anymore. For a span of about five years, I had like 10 or 11 straight unpaid internships, and I would be paid in coffee, and I would drink a lot of coffee, and uh, it turns out that my body actually is extremely sensitive to caffeine, and I my appetite vanishes when I'm on coffee. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I, and I phrase it that way deliberately on coffee. It is mm. like a drug. Um, and now I eat three meals a day and it, sometimes it feels gross. It still kind of goes against the grain, but I just know that it's what I need to be doing. And there's, you know, there, and one good kind of psychological side effect is that like the more measures I take towards self-care, the more confident I can feel in contexts where I might not pre be predisposed to ask somebody to take me seriously. Mm -hmm. But like if I know that I'm against my instincts beginning to take myself seriously, then it's a little bit easier to demand that of other people. Um, and the last thing I'll add, and this is the most useful self-care tool I've found so far that I definitely would have um, cringed at a couple of years ago is yoga. I do it uh, for 90 minutes every day. And on days when I don't do it, I have um, much more, the, the, just the quality of my thoughts is worse mm -hmm. in terms of content and in terms of like level of thought, if that makes any sense. Like when I try to write on days that I haven't done yoga, the writing is worse um, and I don't sleep at night. Well, I think it's interesting that you mentioned cringing because I cringe a lot at suggestions from psychiatrists. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you also said that you had to come to grips with this diagnosis, uh, bipolar. Um, let me take a break if you need more water. Sure. Yeah. Well, so you mentioned cringing at the opinion of psychiatrists. I shared this experience. Um, I definitely I've cringed at the opinions mm -hmm. of psychiatrists, but I think what I was referring to when I say cringe is just kind of general knowledge. Sure. It wasn't like I had gone to a doctor and they'd been like, oh, well, are you eating? And I was like, oh, silly doctor, I don't need food. Like, my degree of um, self-delusion wasn't quite that blatant, but it, it was like a product of a kind of social isolation. Like, it, I'm looking back not on specific instances where I was a naysayer to a doctor, but to a period of time where I was... Um, well, it was before I was really seeing doctors, for one thing, or before I was ever being honest with doctors. It was just a period of time where I was, like, not connecting with anyone. Partly because most other people were taking better care of themselves. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, well, let's talk about graduate school. You're going back to Columbia after doing undergrad there. Yeah. And you have some <laughs> interesting things to say about why you made that choice. What, mm -hmm. will, you, will you tell me why you made that choice and how you feel prepared or in some ways unprepared to do it, you know? It's yeah. a hard thing, graduate school. Uh, I, yeah, that's a good way to phrase the question. There are a lot of ways that I do feel prepared for it and a lot of ways that I don't. Uh, for instance, financially, I don't feel <laughs> <laughs> prepared to do this. Uh, I, I began, well, for one thing, I was a transfer student when mm. I got there. Um, there was a lot of like hopping around from thing to thing in those years of my life between the ages of like 17 and 23. Um, so I had transferred from this tiny college, or not tiny, but like, I, I, I was at William and Mary in Virginia. Mm -hmm. So it's the college it's that's Colum in Colonial Williamsburg. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and it just everybody there was too nice. Like, I, I came up with all these clever reasons to explain why I had transferred, but the truth of it is, the student body there was really kind and I didn't know how to, mm. it, it just scared me off. So I went to this like edgy place and um, I just wasn't, yeah, when I arrived at Columbia, I was unwell. And then by the time I finally was beginning to get a handle on what I wanted out of my education, 
I, it was like graduation time. Mm -hmm. So by the time I was finally beginning to do yoga at seven every morning, uh, beginning to like drink water, beginning to um, pace myself, beginning to like not do internships anymore, uh, it, time was up. And so I, I want to go back because I feel more stable at this point in my life than I ever have, um, even before college. In certain ways, I was stable as a high schooler, but there was I had fewer responsibilities, you know? Um, so I, I want to kind of have the scholastic experience that I was denying mm -hmm. to myself by accident for the majority of the time that I was in college. Sure. And listeners, I apologize for the air conditioner, but it's too hot. Mm -hmm. um, Self-care. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, so speaking of medications, we've been talking a lot about different options for medications, and we're talking about ECT, and you have personal experience of knowing people who have done it. Mm -hmm. And could you tell us a little bit about the people you know, at least, what it's been like for seeing them and knowing them? Yeah, so I... I actually wouldn't say that I do know people who have experienced mm, sure. ECT because my experience with it has been in an almost lab-like setting. <laughs> um, there were two times that I was in a psychiatric facility, once as outpatient, once as inpatient, that lasted longer than uh, a week and a half, each one. And in both t instances, I got to know because there's this horrible thing called group CBT that a lot of psych wards do mm. that I really am opposed to. But it's a, it is, um, you know, if you're curious about other human beings, it is a fascinating experience to go through. Uh, anyway, point is, I, um, I encountered some people before and after undergoing that. Mm -hmm. And in the after phase, it was like, meeting them, like I texted you earlier, yeah. it was like meeting them for the first time. Um, I, I'm trying to figure out a way to phrase this without making it sound uh, sentimental or mystical, mm -hmm. but it's it really changed the way I see a lot of things, not just when it comes to mental health, but this idea that like in the first few days that I was encountering this individual, there were all of these things that I thought was just their personality, like these factors that I thought were just part of who they are. And then after they undergo ECT, like their whole personality is different. Mm -hmm. um, it just, it was, it, it really on a deep level demonstrated just how, um, how powerful mental illness is mm -hmm. and how powerful, you know, on the flip side of the coin, well-being can be. It sounds like from our conversation, you had kind of a moment where you went from being a little resistant to a diagnosis or a little resistant or very resistant to being more willing to accept some of the nomenclature as well as the self-care. And Could you talk about a moment in your life or some moments that were kind of turning points in that regard? Sure. Um, I think I, there was this one period where I was kind of cursed and blessed at the same time. It's a story I've already told you um, where just something kind of extraordinary happened to me and extraordinarily bad. And uh, I briefly met with a couple regular therapists, non-psychiatrists, but 
over and over, I just either felt before even telling them the story that I wouldn't be believed, or I would tell it and I just still felt like I wasn't being believed. But um, I found one finally who not only believed me immediately, but also immediately wanted to move away from that particular story. Like I had seen therapy as something that I would just need for like three or four sessions. I would learn everything that a mental health professional knows about this one topic that's relevant to my life in a very um, limited way. And then like almost as if it was taking a crash course. Like I, I entered therapy hoping that the focus would be on a situation that had touched my life, but not on me, myself. Mm -hmm. um, but this person, and this is how I became convinced that she's good and she's worth spending a lot of money on, <laughs> is uh, she said, you know, not only did she believe it, but she also was then like, now I'm gonna like zero the focus in on your childhood. Like mm -hmm. we're gonna talk about things that you didn't come here to talk about. Um, and I think we'd been working together for maybe less than a year when she, or maybe a little over a year, but anyway, she just, she said to me, like, I respect and understand all of the terror you feel when it comes to doctors and when it comes to medications, but um, at the same time, I feel a little bit, um, I don't think she used the word powerless, I don't know how she phrased it, but she just made it clear that there, there was a lot that she could do in our work together that she would be able to do if I also had a psychiatrist mm -hmm. on my team. Um, but she just, she was convinced that I was um, setting myself in a downward, downward spiral that I could not get out of without um, another person on the team. And it was because of the trust that it had taken over a year to build with her. It was only because of that that I was able to... Um, like really tentatively dip my toe into seeing a psychiatrist. And I chose one who specialized in children too. Mm -hmm. She was a woman and she worked with children um, because I just, I, for some reason, I don't remember what my logic was, but I was convinced, I, I was just really afraid of being compared to other grown women for huh. some reason. And I just wanted, or I, I don't know, maybe it's like, you know, everybody's need to feel special rears its head in some way. But for some reason, just working with this woman who usually works with children uh, worked out really well. And the fact that she and my therapist were communicating with one another mm -hmm. in a way that wasn't private, like they were letting me know everything that they oh, had yeah. let one another know. And the fact that they were both women, um, mm. all of that like allowed me to finally be at peace with the idea of taking a pill regularly and then renewing a prescription. <laughs> yeah, because I, as a teenager, I had been occasionally prescribed medication, um, but I, I wouldn't even, I, I didn't believe that I had a problem. And in a sense at that time, I, I don't, I still believe that my problem wasn't medical. So I just wasn't taking the medication seriously. Yeah. How would you feel about seeing an adult psychiatrist now if you were to look for one, mm -hmm. opposed to a child one? Yeah, um, terrified, mm -hmm. really terrified. It's funny, you and I were talking earlier, uh, and you were making a really strong case for seeing an adult psychiatrist, um, but at one point, I think my, my argument was, all my self-care methods are working really well, mm -hmm. I'm running all the time, 
And you said, but what if you break your leg? And it took me like two full days to realize what you'd meant by that. I flashed back to my dad telling me as like a 13 year old, we're gonna treat depression as seriously as we would treat a broken leg. Depression is real and it's a real medical issue. Um, and that was the metaphor he used. And I think it's the appropriate metaphor, but at that stage in my life, what I needed was not medication. Mm -hmm. So like, I think a part of my mind like automatically closed down when you used that mm -hmm. language. But I know now what you really mean is like, if you break your leg, then you can't exercise and you yeah, know exactly. all the self-care methods that you've been relying on, you're gonna be left without a paddle. Um, so yeah, I, I think I am going to meet with one uh, probably when I get back from this work trip I'm about to take tomorrow. But yeah, just thinking about it, I feel like throwing up. <laughs> well, I think it's really hard because, you know, support and self-care, it's a lot of different pillars, different things that the yoga, the running, the this, the that. Mm -hmm. But there are always times when one or two of those pillars can get knocked down and you need a little bit more sometimes. It's yeah. just the way I see it, I guess. But I was wondering, what does it mean to be compared to an adult woman and would you prefer to be compared to a child? Um... This, like, this is definitely not how psychiatry actually works, uh, but since, since it, it was finally sinking in that like so much of my dysfunction as an adult was directly linked to early, early childhood trauma, mm. um, I just thought like, if I'm, I'm going to go big or go home, like I'm going to be in touch with the little, little kid when I'm meeting with a doctor. So I'm going to feel most comfortable with a doctor who's already predisposed to like being really gentle with little kids. I think that was kind of my logic. Um, and I just, I didn't feel at that time, like, as, as I said earlier, like, since I was already pretty unwell at the start of that process, I just did not have it in me mm -hmm. to go through the whole, you know, trial and error with, with a bunch of doctors. It's a lot of work. Yeah, and a lot of them, it's, it's still, it's staggering to me how many psychiatrists are abrasive in their treatment of patients I and their personalities. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's I mean, unbelievable. I had one who, um, this is before I met, like, I did try uh, to set up appointments with people who specialize in adults before I met up with the one who specializes in children. And she, if she, I want to make clear, she didn't exclusively treat children. Like, she did sure. treat women my yeah. age, too. But um, just there were, there were miscommunications that were nuts. Like, this one said, okay, let's meet, let's connect on Monday. And apparently she had meant over the phone, but I went to her office and I'm like, well, where are you? What's going on? And then honestly, her behavior afterwards was gaslighting. Mm. It was, it was, and I, in order to, if I had followed through and met with her, that would have cost $500. Yeah. You know, the amount of psychiatrist charges is in usually an in inverse proportion, obviously, <laughs> to the quality. Yeah. That, but it's so frustrating when, because you have to put so much trust in them, as you say, and it's so hard to put trust in someone who just does stupid shit like that. Yeah. I mean, when I'm, when I'm in, a, in a very unwell state, and naturally, you know, the self-esteem is mm -hmm. sub-zero, um, I, I don't think 
this may shock you, but I don't believe that I'm worth five hundred dollars. Uh, that's depression. Yeah, and even but even when I'm well, yeah. I still don't think that an hour of time with me is worth five hundred dollars. Well, a single. No, for one thing, you have like, insurance. There are yeah. doctors who take your insurance who are yeah. very good. But even if there weren't, you're worth every penny of it if it's worth it. But what you're describing to me is not like therapy or psychiatry. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's it's staggering. Um, has anyone ever evaluated you for PTSD? Um, you know what? I don't think officially. The first time that I was um, put in a hospital in an emergency sense, they did this like giant BuzzFeed quiz. Mm-hmm, yeah, you know, and yeah, they, the they take you to this everything. right. They take you into this private room like you're a criminal, and they take out this big black binder, and then it's like multiple choice for three hours. Mm-hmm. And um, maybe this is because I'm a creative, so to speak. But like, I remember looking at every single question and being like. I could make a case for circling A, B, C, or D here. Mm. Like, all of this feels so subjective. This is the most impersonal thing I've ever... Yeah, but I, you know, I don't know if I need to be evaluated for PTSD. I, I am of the belief that I have it. My doctors mm. are of the belief that I have it, so... So they think you have it. They've said so. Um, well, when I say my doctor, I just mean my therapist. Okay. Yeah, um, and she doesn't even phrase it in, in that term. She doesn't say trauma disorder... Um, but she used the word, she was the first person in my life to use the word trauma. Um, and maybe the first 50 times she used it, I just felt like I was some villain in a mask and that I had like pulled one over on her that she thought that I'd experienced trauma, but you know, she, I must've fooled her into being nice to me or something. But like, eventually I began doing some like independent research and then I found some writing on something called CPTSD. It's called mm-hmm. Complex. And I just mentioned the author of that article to her in passing. And I, I was sort of sarcastic when I mentioned this guy's name. It's Peter something. Um, but then, yeah, she's like, no, that, that person is in the, the therapy canon. Like, he's a respected figure. And he, she's like, I think that you, you know, this is a language that is going to be productive for us. And it turned out to be. For sure. So, I mean, what is your day-to-day relationship to the trauma? Do you have nightmares? Hmm. No. Um, I think that it's been a while since I've revisited the literature, which, pro- which is probably a good thing. But the, um, the difference between CPTSD and regular post-traumatic stress disorder, and this is speaking in really general terms, but my understanding of it is that traumatic stress disorder is in the aftermath of something that has happened to you. Mm. And the other one is a response to something not happening to you. Neglect, maybe? Exactly. Um, And, yeah, and it's... It's, this is where it gets really dicey to talk about um, because I don't want to sound like I'm, um, I don't know, like slandering my parents. But in my early, early childhood, there were obstacles that my family encountered that, you know, people, even with the best intentions, it would have been a real struggle mm-hmm. to tend to their children's emotional needs. Um, my father has a really severe congenital heart condition and my mother just didn't anticipate that. And, um, the family was 
pretty much in a constant state of emergency because we never really knew when that would rear its ugly head. Um, and I, I don't think that either of them... Like, I'm not sure that they were aware of just what a kind of absurdly sensitive child they had. Yeah. yeah. And I just, I just completely, like a sponge, like absorbed that sense of dread. And um, I guess this was like the first creative act I ever had, but like I drew a completely incorrect conclusion from the emotional atmosphere of the house. And I somehow convinced myself that like, if I ever act out or if I ever come to them with my problems, um, it's going to kill my dad. Mm. Yeah, because he, he would have an emergency cardiac event if he was ever surprised or if he was ever emotionally stressed out. Mm -hmm. um, and so I just began subconsciously, like really hardcore repressing my emotions. That's a really intense thing to have to go through. I, I think yeah. you'd really love uh, uh, The Body Keeps the Score. Vanderkolk talks about yeah, that. And I, yeah. Oh, he's the one who wrote that? Yeah. Yeah, well, that's why yoga is so productive for exactly. me. Exactly. And yeah. he talks about something called post-traumatic developmental disorder, which is on mm -hmm. its way to the DSM. And it's very similar to the kind of altered PTSD you're talking about. And I think um, it's very important to be working on it, but it can be very hard to revisit it, too, you know? Yeah. And it can be productive sometimes, but... In my experience, it's mostly unproductive when you don't have the tools at hand. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's completely why I was so uh, isolated in college. I mean, I was social, but I was still just in a, an attitude and a frame of mind that was inherently self-isolating. Um, just that, like, that idea uh, that you're going to break other people if you are yourself mm -hmm. had just completely slipped under the radar through all of those years. Um, and like, that's why I'm anxious, but excited to like go back to that same, more or less same social environment now for grad school. Do you think you learned something from inpatient treatment or was it just terrible? Um, yeah, you know what, I, this, yeah, this interview would feel really unfinished if we didn't talk about inpatient treatment. I also want to touch on identity politics. Um, one thing that really I just don't know what to do with when it comes to inpatient treatment is that often the doctors and the nurses will behave in a way that's kind of like friendship forging mm -hmm. with the patients. And at the same time, many psych wards have explicit rules discouraging <laughs> patients from forming friendships with one another, mm -hmm. which to me feels super counterintuitive because what group cognitive behavioral therapy mm -hmm. is, is like, it's like regular therapy, except we're all in this public act of like saying, in, you know, in a psych ward, there will be, you know, people who have nearly committed suicide or people who tried to commit suicide 12 hours ago, yeah. like, and people will be totally bearing their souls in front of one another and there's a power dynamic that I don't trust and I, I'm trying to remember what the reasons they gave are like something about how you might have a relapse or you might end up back up in the psych ward if you keep in touch with people but that seems messed up to me because like if you actually 
have faith in CBT, yeah. group, group CBT, then the whole idea would be that, like, if we're exposing ourselves to one another here, then, like, and that's supposed to be doing something, then wouldn't that thing that it's doing be healthy? I, yeah, um, but anyway, I broke the rules. In my first act of rebellion in my life, I decided to stay friends with somebody that I met in my second uh, hospitalization, and... Um, we're friends to this day and it's uh it's been it's been pretty much a nearly 100% positive thing in my life and I just I just want to encourage anyone if they find themselves in a psych ward suddenly which hopefully none of the listeners ever do but like try try to listen to your gut and try I mean it's so hard because you want to believe that the doctors have all the answers and the doctors are going to tie a bow on your life but you know be aware that in any institution there's most likely going to be racism there's most likely going to be sexism and classism and just have a um keep an eye out for abuses of authority, large and small. Doesn't sound like you felt very safe in there. Um, At least emotionally. Exactly. I felt, uh, yeah, every time I've been in a psych ward, I've felt extremely emotionally unsafe. Yeah, I've, I've found male doctors patronizing, obtuse, <laughs> In, in almost every ward I've been in, most of the doctors have been men and nearly all of the nurses have been women. Mm. And that's another area where, like, friendship forming just feels kind of gendered. And the, it's just many, many things inside the psych ward just felt disturbingly passé <laughs> uh, for all of the extremely high-tech science mm. in these medications that we're going to rotate and have you try this one and then this one and then this one I felt like if I could possibly be seen as something other than a woman then then we might reach a place where a solution would be feasible but I never really felt like that had happened and also there are so many factors when it comes to mental health that are social and are political mm -hmm. and that it, it's like it's like it, it, I could I could write a stage play that takes place in one room and that's you know a doctor's office and like it would be two acts act one is when they're alone with the patient and then when they're with the patient and the patient's parents mm -hmm. and like everything any any half-witted audience member would see like the way certain social factors are what are truly the problem. Yeah, I just felt like I had a bubble around me that was distorting how the people in authority were seeing me. I just felt over and over again like I could scream, and I hate this phrase, but like my truth at the mm -hmm. top of my lungs, and they would be like, hmm, have we tried Risperidone? <laughs> like, and so in addition to that confinement, there's also literally the physical confinement of it, which here's another place where them acting like they're your friend can be really deceiving. Mm -hmm. 
it's like in a bureaucracy anywhere. I remember my, like, in college, my college advisor was, like, sweet as a lamb, but fairly dim-witted. Like, like you know, it's just yeah. over and over in any institution that I come into contact with that has more than, like, 50 people in it. Like, it's always the most agreeable, nice people who are mm -hmm. doing the customer service work. So, like, when I checked myself voluntarily, like, two days before my college graduation, I thought I was writing a book. Uh, I was not writing a book, but I had written 80 pages in a notebook, and mm -hmm. I hadn't slept in six days. So it's like, this is an instance where maybe an emergency treatment might yeah. help you. Yeah. Uh, so I checked into this hospital, and the man uh, on the first floor, I had very... Um, even though I was, like, practically writing on my own skin, and mm -hmm. I was, like... It was very hard for me to stop the motion of my hands. Like, I was able to tell the lady at check-in, like, I am definitely not trying to harm myself, and I'm definitely not trying to harm other people. Um, but after that, they first thing they did was they took my cell phone away. Mm -hmm. And I had gone alone. I had not brought anybody because I nobody like wants to be witnessed when they're not in full control mm -hmm. of their ability to put a pen down, right? So like, the guy who did my intake was a he was beautiful <laughs> he looked like he looked like tay diggs uh but he was also saying things like oh it really sounds like you've been through a lot mm. and and then you know i just felt like i would be i could tell that there were people kind of in line behind me and i was wearing a paper gown that like some woman had helped me put on my body as though i had a physical injury like all kinds of layers of indebtedness were in play when I signed like six forms in a row. And, you know, this was, this was NYU Langone. I don't have any, I believe in naming names, including the names of hospitals. <laughs> and, and, you know, he assured me before I signed the forms that like, you meet with a doctor, this is a voluntary facility, and all you have to do is meet with a doctor in order to leave, and you leave at your will. But after the forms were taken away and after, it, it was like cliche and how mm. cinematic it was after the big doors were literally yeah. like locked. That's when I said, okay, you know, so where are the doctors? And it was going to be four days. They're like, oh, the doctors aren't here on Fridays or weekends. Mm -hmm. And I, four days for one yeah. thing, that's a lot of money per day. Yeah. And for another thing, for I was supposed to graduate. And like, I was, I was like doing my final exams from a psych ward. I, at that point, I, I started to um, breathe really heavily, and then they took me into a room that had a name that was some fucking euphemism, like, like the calm room. Mm -hmm. like, they, like, my body was ushered into this space where if I shouted, it wouldn't disturb the other patients. Like, I just... And, and I also... I also... You know, there are articles written by qualified real journalists about the profit that hospitals make from quickly ushering people into inpatient. Oh, yeah. Um, it's a real phenomenon. So I just, again, over and over again, identity politics, power, capitalism, just, like, it's, it's horrible. It's wicked that, like, people at their weakest who are either in a state that's, like, hypervigilant already or in a state where they're just too too exhausted to fight mm -hmm. back, like, encounter this kind of um, silencing. I just, if, you know, if any listeners already have experienced emergency psychiatric quote-unquote care or will in the future, there are a lot of imperfections within the system, and it's not 
I'm not, I'm not trying to sound like some crazy like rebel leader, but it, there are a lot of things that you're going to experience and it's not in your head and you just have to hang on. Uh, the last time that I was hospitalized a little over two years ago, I bit the bullet and I had a friend visit me. I just had him bring me a computer and that was it. And he only stayed for about 10 minutes. Um, I could tell that he was distressed because he's a smart person and he was overhearing the way the doctors talk to the patients. So I, I asked him to leave. Anything that you can do while you're in there to reacquaint yourself with who you were when you were healthy and people who can still see you for who you are when you're really unwell, that's the best kind of um, tool in your toolkit that you can have. Like there, there was a time once when I didn't need to be hospitalized, but um, it was it was when I was having that emergency from taking too much Seroquel, and I was having a you know, fake depressive episode mm. or real. Who can say what's real uh, when depending on the point of origin, right? Yeah. But anyway, I became convinced that I had head lice, but really I just wasn't showering enough, and I had like nasty dead skin in my hair. But I would go and I would put, I'd pour these bottles and bottles of oh. horrible chemicals on my head. Guess what that did? It dried out my skin. More, no more little white spots would appear in my head and I'd be like, shit, I'm failing as an adult. I can't take care of myself. I can't even get rid of head lice. Oh. Like, you know, people who make $2 a day in Latin America can handle head lice and I can't. Uh, but after like four weeks of struggling with this thing, m the same friend who visited me in the hospital, he just... It was my birthday in 2015, and he just came to my apartment, and he's like, we're going to watch 10 Things I Hate About You. You're gonna, we're going to lie in your bed and do this, and maybe you have head lice. If you do, I'm still, you're still going to lie right next to me. And him doing that was the thing that like, reacquainted me with reality, and it's, like, it's, not, it's nothing to be ashamed of, but you don't have head lice. <laughs> I think that's so important. You have to have people who you believe in and who you can trust. Yeah. And the thing about doctors that I'm learning more and more is they're not getting any better. Like mm -hmm. the new generation of doctors and unfortunately you do have to work harder as a patient to get good care but I think what you've described is this very multifaceted approach and that really seems like the smartest way toward recovery. Yeah. And the really remarkable thing about this person, there are many things, but like he himself has never been emergency, like needed emergency care. Uh, like he he isn't bipolar and um, so he doesn't just like the fact that someone who's relatively stable could still empathize with me and and sort of be there for me was really surprising I think for a while I had this idea that like only mentally ill people can truly understand mm -hmm. and be there for other mentally ill people but I, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of letting go of that a little bit. Well, I think that's a good note to end on. Yeah. Thank you so much, Liv. I hope to see you again soon. Thank you again for listening to this episode of Astrocytes. We'll be back next week. Stay tuned.